Everyone, quick reminder, nothing said on Empire is a recommendation to buy or sell securities or tokens. This podcast is for informational purposes only, and any views expressed by anyone on the show are solely our opinions, not financial advice. Santiago and I and our guests may hold positions in the companies, funds, or projects discussed. Now, let's get into the show. All right, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Empire. I am joined by my co-host, Mr. Santiago Santos and Mr. Jake Bruckman, OG in crypto, NFT pioneer, founder and CEO of CoinFund, launched in 2015, one of the best funds in the entire industry. Jake has been, I think I've known you, Jake, maybe since 2017 or 2018. And the thing about knowing Jake is it's really frustrating because you're you're consistently like a solid 18 to 24 months ahead of everybody else. And every time I, I see you put something out, whether it's like 2018 investing in NFTs or like 2019 starting to go kind of all in on, on things like DeFi, it's like you are consistently uh, what feels like so early to different trends and, and just like so spot on with different things. Uh, the multi-chain future, I think I remember you guys investing in... Um, uh, I forget what it was, maybe Polkadot back in the day, just very early to the multi-chain thesis. So anyways, Jake, welcome to Empire, my friend. Well, that's an amazing introduction. Thank you so much for having me, uh, Jason Santiago. Yeah, of course. There are so many things we could talk about here, um, but we are going to spend this episode focusing on uh, our, is crypto a public good? Are crypto networks public goods? And here's kind of the outline of what I want to do. Uh, one is just like First, introduce public goods, private goods, common goods, uh, why it's important to talk about this topic, define these these topics. The second is um, really how do like public goods and private goods and common goods apply to technology today? Talk about open source code and then figure out how this applies to crypto today. And the reason out of all the topics that we could talk about, the reason I think this is so important is uh, at a time when kind of these like... Uh, these ideals that govern America are kind of, it feels like they're almost like stalling out. We have this tool that opens a new door for uh, different kinds of participation, different kinds of accountability, this like uh, a, a democracy native to the internet. And if you know where to look within crypto right now, there's all this creativity and experimentation and governance happening from like these small groups like Constitution DAO to these massive protocols. And I think what, uh, what we will discover is that crypto enables coordination towards what labor and cooperative movements have struggled to achieve, like putting ownership of value into the hands of those who created it. So Jake, I want to start very broad here before we go deeper, which is like, why do you, why is this an important topic to discuss? Why is public goods and private goods and, and common goods, why is it important to, to think about that in the lens of crypto? Because um, we, as investors and researchers in the blockchain technology space, we're constantly trying to understand what is this technology that we're dealing with? And it's like that famous cartoon where, you know, people are in a room and they're touching different parts of the elephant and they're blind and everyone thinks the elephant is like something different. Right. Um, and, you know, there are people who have looked at blockchain and they said, Oh, blockchain, it's a, you know, efficiency technology for banks. Like the most likely use case of blockchain is to uh, facilitate settlement in banking, right? And then there's like other people who've looked at it and said, no, 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 no. it's actually like a lot more disruptive than that. You can build uh, or you can rebuild the entirety of like all financial services, you know, as smart contracts, remove a lot of intermediaries and actually serve all of finance. 
And then some other people said, no, you guys are crazy. Um, blockchain is all about taking pictures of cats and making them scarce and then like trading them as collectibles, right? Um, and so like as a researcher, one of my goals is to just understand like what in general is this technology doing? What is it like poised to do? And what are going to be some of the biggest um, use cases of it? And one, you know, one theme that keeps reemerging as we actually build protocols, as we get DeFi out there, as we get, you know, NFT exchanges out there, as we get AMMs, as we get other crypto networks, is that like what is embodied in a crypto network is a fundamentally different way of organizing humans. And so the question is, why? Like, what are the differences? Like, how is it good? How is it bad? How is it different? Um, and the next question is, like, what does that mean for the future? Like, like, if this is a new way of organization, like, how are people likely to use this at scale? Or will it ever get to scale? And one of the things that we, one of the, like, if you ask me, right, like, one of the clearly, quote, unquote, like, disruptive things about um, how crypto networks organize is that they present um, a way that goods and services can, first of all, be owned and second of all, be governed by the users of those things. In other words, it starts to look a little bit like public goods. <laughs> maybe like you can think of that maybe as like nonprofits uh, in the traditional world would be the analog. Um, or you can look at it as just, you know, products and services that should be available to all humans on earth. And the way that like we understand today in the traditional world, how those goods are implemented, how they brought to market, they're brought to market is essentially through like government, right? Like, government is the thing that can facilitate, um, things that are meant for the public good. But what blockchain technology is showing us, as is the case in like, you know, if we study the governance of like the Bitcoin network, the Ethereum network, various DeFi protocols, DAOs, you know, and so forth, is that you now have enough digital technology that implementation through government isn't the only possible implementation anymore, right? And, th and this has like an analog and kind of like, the cryptocurrency view of, of blockchain as well. Like what we, you know, what Bitcoin people have said for years is, hey, you know, nation states had a monopoly on money, but in going to Bitcoin, that monopoly is dissipated. Like anyone can, you know, now put in eight lines of code as a Solidity smart contract or, or use Bitcoin or whatever it is. And they can, they can use a, a currency that is public open, borderless, permissionless, um, forkable, and to some extent governable, depending on which one you're talking about. And now this is a new way of implementing a public good, if that makes sense. Great, man. So, okay. So that's a really interesting place to start. I think to set up the conversation here, as we dig into it, can you define public goods versus private goods versus common goods? Yes. Well, there's a, there's a very like technical definition from economics. So let me start there and then maybe we can talk a little bit about like the, um, just the more 
practical definition. So there's these two properties of goods um, that economists define in, in search of, of the answer there, which is excludability and, and rivalry. So we say that um, a public good is one that is non-excludable and non-rivalrous. Excludability means that like you can um, you can sort of prevent certain people from using the service, but but you can't, uh, or, or, but you only provide the service to, to a certain subgroup of people, right? So, for example, enjoying the sun would be non-excludable. I can't really charge you for enjoying the sun and then prevent you from enjoying the sun if you don't pay me. Uh, but I can do that if I'm a publisher of a magazine and you're a customer who's seeking a subscription, right? So that's excludability. And rivalry refers sort of to like the abundance of that, of that thing. Um, again, the sun, you know, while it's not, while it doesn't have infinite energy, it still has so much energy <laughs> that it will probably be more energy than everyone on earth will ever need like forever, right? Uh, forever that matters. Um, whereas internet bandwidth has the property that if like a lot of people are using the thing, there might not be enough bandwidth for you, right? And so they're in this like rivalrous relationship. So a public good is one that is non-excludable, everyone can use it, and non, non-rivalrous. It, it's basically like really abundant. A common good um, is one that is, I believe, non-excludable, but potentially rivalrous. And so one interesting question to address here, like in our context is like, for example, is a blockchain by those types of definitions, is it a common good or a public uh, good? And the answer seems to be that it's, a, it's actually, well, it, it kind of depends which aspect of the, of the blockchain you're talking about. But I want to take a very like general view and say, um, participating in a blockchain just means like, can I connect to that network? Can I interact with that network? Can I send transactions in that network? Can I run a node in that network? And in that sense, blockchains seem to be non-excludable. Like we don't charge people for belonging to a blockchain network and then exclude people, you know, that don't pay or something like that. Anyone can, by definition, by the definition of this network being open, anyone can like run a node. Anyone can put in a transaction, whether it's valid or invalid. Now it is true that you have to pay though for that transaction to be processed in the sense of like, if I want to send you some, some Bitcoin, you know, I got to pay a transaction fee. If I, want to, if I want to execute an Ethereum smart contract, I got to pay you a transaction fee. Um, but that's what makes blockchain networks actually kind of rivalrous, right? Like we've seen this before. If, you know, if there's a lot of transactions going into Ethereum and we sort of reach, um, you know, a kind of carrying capacity of whatever Ethereum is capable of, today in terms of throughput, then um, the next person who puts in a transaction, it might just take a long time for it to get through, or he might have to like, or she pay, you know, pay a higher fee. And that's, I think, what what makes blockchains rivalrous in that sense. And so I think that makes blockchain a common good. And I think a private good would then be, uh, I believe by implication, something that is both excludable and rivalrous. and maybe that's something like a good in an Amazon warehouse, you know, like I'm ordering, um, 
uh, pots for plants on Amazon these days. And, you know, if I don't pay for one, I'm not going to receive it. And also, if I buy all of them, you know, the next customer is not going to get the next one. Okay. So, so those are like the very technical definitions of public, common, private good. Um, and then in a practical sense, it, it just, or maybe even just like a colloquial sense, like what does it mean to have a, a public good? Well, it, it means it's a, it's a different way of delivering um, a product or service. It's a way of delivering um, this product or service um, that doesn't require a profit margin. I'm not saying it, it doesn't necessarily, it can't be profitable. This is a key sort of distinction in, in, in the blockchain space here, which we can get into, but it doesn't have a, a profit margin. Like when we think of traditional capitalist goods being delivered to the market, we think of a company provide like, like building that product or service, right? Distributing it, charging for it. And their goal is to create a profit margin, you know, to make a return for their investors, for their shareholders and so forth. But in a, but in a public or common good, we don't require that margin. It's, this is for the, the good of the people. Um, and the other practical sense that we think about public goods um, as op- what regime public goods and operate in uh, is that is, is, is governance, right? So in, in corporations, we have generally a CEO, managing partners, a board, you know, even a public board in a, in a public corporation. Um, and those are the people who um, make sure that the shareholders are getting a return. But in a public or common good, we're just trying to have a, a, like a measure of governance that assures that the distribution of this good is fair. Right. And that's usually presumably done by the government or it's done by uh, people who have volunteered, you know, to, to, to have that capacity. So, so those are the two like yeah. practical uh, ways in which we understand these goods. A lot of, <clears throat> no, Jay, I think that's a very good overview. Uh, I guess like turning it more specifically to crypto, I think a lot of the discussion that you've seen over time is, is everything that being that is being created in what I probably you could think of as like infrastructure, is that going to be a common good? Is value actually going to accrue to some of these protocols or not? I'm curious to get your take on how you think of the different the different pieces of the stack that are being built in Web three, and where do you where do you see value accruing, and where do you see value perhaps not accruing? What other people might think it will? Yeah, great. Great question. Um, well, so I think that the ability to create, let's say, common goods in crypto, you know, does not like not every technological innovation needs to replace all the previous technological innovations. Sometimes a technological innovation becomes a tool in your toolkit. And we see this like in, in crypto broadly in the following sense. We have certain uh, projects that are extremely decentralized networks. And we have other projects that are very much private centralized companies that use the value propositions of blockchains or cryptocurrency in some way. Right. And it's not that like, Oh, we discovered decentralization and then everything turned decentralized. That experiment was run in 2017. 
the year when Jason and I met during the ICO boom, right? And, you know, the trend was like, everything has to be decentralized. So, so the ability to create a common good doesn't have to supersede like every other model that we have. We can create private goods, we can create public goods, we can create common goods. It is a tool. What's really interesting to me, and I want to be clear that this is like, this is philosophy. I think we, we still are yet to see, um, we need to see more evidence in the market of this. But what's really cool is that traditionally implemented public goods very much don't create a return. This is because they have this like zero margin thing. But public goods created using crypto networks have an opportunity to be to create a return even though they are a zero margin. And the way that they that might look is for example, let's take let's take a concrete example, maybe like ENS, right? So ENS is um um it's a network that uh, manages, you know, Ethereum domains, and it's a set of smart contracts. And there is a governance system in ENS. Like, if you are an ENS token holder, you can vote on proposals about the network, and you can also delegate um, your tokens to someone who will vote on your behalf. And as a matter of fact, I personally am a delegate on ENS. ENS as a network is not really a for-profit network. Like it does charge you money um, for, um, let's say, registering a domain. But I would argue that the network operates at cost. So if it's operating at cost, how, does this net- how can this network create a return? Well, and the answer is that because this network is a public good, or let's say common good, and because it is governable by, by, by its uh, by the people who are in that network, who use that network, that governance value might be reflected in the token asset. And so if you're just a user of the network, you have this great value proposition of being able to use, you know, this service at cost, which is going to be the lowest price that you can possibly get for this service in the market. It will certainly be lower than centralized providers who have this, you know, higher profit margin. And yet um, you might be, you know, as a governor of this protocol, you might get um, a return if you govern it correctly. And so that's like highly, in my opinion, that's highly disruptive to how products and services have been implemented in the past. What do you guys think? Yeah, I think, um, I think generally, of, uh, if you look at Web two, a lot of value has been accruing at, at the very top. Um, and there's a whole stack that it provides a ton of value, but there has there, there has really been a way to monetize that. Just writ large, there hasn't been a way to monetize open source effectively uh, and compensate contributors. Um, and I think when I try to explain crypto to people that perhaps may not are caught up in this Bitcoin, like, you know, blockchain, not crypto. I say, wait a minute, but like open source is really powerful and you have a way now to more equitably and efficiently, programmatically reward contributors in any open source system. And I think a lot of public good infrastructure has come out of open source development. And now the novelty here is that you can perhaps embed a more 
precise mechanism, a new way to monetize these contributions of these open source networks. And, and then I think the state in which we're in right now in crypto is like our governance tokens going to accrue value is all the value going to accrue at the bottom kind of L1 layer, kind of fat protocol thesis that the placeholder guys initially kind of coined? Or are we going to see perhaps value be distributed in a different way? Uh, I think a lot of people are caught up in, in analogies which make it easier for the brain to understand certain things, but always inherently miss a lot of the novelties of new pieces of technology. And I think it's just open to be it's important to be open-minded and candidly, I think no one really kind of knows um, whether where I think it's more of a relative question of where will value as an investor, which you are, you're constantly thinking, where is, where's my dollar better served investing in an L1 that captures MEV in a DeFi protocol that provides core pieces of financial infrastructure or in a, you know, aggregator, whether it be an exchange or a wallet, or something else. And I think that's the more difficult question because also it's quite early. And so we don't really know, um, but hmm. you know, at the end of the day, it is a lot of it is an attention game. Um, and so, yeah, open questions. I don't think there's a perfect answer. I'm curious if you have a, a different view. No, no. So I, I think, um, so I think you, you talked about a few things there. So one thing you talked about was open source. So I totally agree. Open source is a great example of this, you know, repositories and like the groups of people around repositories who, who build up the software um, are a special case of a public good. It's like they're creating the software. They're putting in a lot of their time, effort, um, coding ability, talent, etc. you know, to create this code base and people have different motivations for doing that. But the point is that the result is, is a non, you know, it often has a non-proprietary license. It's open to forking, to modification. It's certainly open to like use, perhaps even commercial use, but there's no clear business model on open source. And, and this has been a problem, right? Because there's been some very um, important pieces of software that maintain, you know, just huge amounts of our technology stack, like in the world, right. That have been open source. I mean, think about like, mm-hmm. I don't know, SSL or something like that. Right. Or, or just different frameworks for building websites. Um, mm-hmm. and, and, and many other things, right. That, that large corporations mm-hmm. and big tech companies use that are critical to their operations, but they never pay for the software. They're, the software is like mm-hmm. never licensed in this for-profit way. So how how does that work? I mean, it seems to be completely contrary to to capitalism. And the answer seems to be that, well, first of all, in many of these cases, you have uh, kind of private sponsors that donate money to these projects. So you've, you've seen things like Sun buying uh, the Java programming language, right? Um, and, you know, you have maybe other like non-monetary compensation that contributors might accept. So they might accept for the fact, uh, like the fact that they worked at a very famous repo might actually help them get a job, you know, at, you know, in another context. So there's a, a sort of indirect reputational value um, to doing that. 
But when you when you go over to the sort of crypto model or the model that we have seen in crypto, then you turn that architecture like the or I like to call it the operating system of how of how you produce these goods, you turn that completely on its head because now you can do things like say, um, you know what, if you're a contributor to this repository and your um, pull request is accepted, then you can get some tokens. And when you get some tokens, you're allowed to vote on which pull request is accepted next. And if you've, you know, if you've worked on this for a long time and you've made many pull requests, you're going to have more voting power because you're going to have more tokens. And as well, you should, right? Because if you look at like Linux, there's very clearly a small number of people who are extremely knowledgeable about how Linux is implemented, Linus Torvalds. And arguably, Linus Torvalds should have more, um, you know, commit power than other people who are just joining the project because he's been working on it for 30 years or whatever, right? And so this is almost a hand in glove, you know, sort of fit for can we make open source sustainable? And there's, of course, as you guys know, there's many projects in the space, uh, including Radical and Gitcoin and others, right, who are working on on that problem. Mm-hmm. So, Tiago, the, the, I think for the oh, yeah, go, ahead, go ahead, go ahead. No, I was just going to address the uh, the second thing that you mentioned, which was like value capture, which is also like an incredibly interesting topic. And um, yeah, I, I actually <laughs> I met Joel Manegro back in the summer of 2016, a couple of weeks before he published uh, Fat Protocols, um, and and really appreciate sort of like his his work there. But I also I also later published a post called Fat Protocols are not an investment thesis, <laughs> which was sort of a bunch of counterpoints to why value that we will see does not necessarily always have to migrate. Um, to the bottom of the stack. So there's a very like, there's a general sense in which Joel is very right about fat protocols. And there are a lot of like very specific senses in which we've seen monetization happen in crypto, not at the, you know, the base layer. And, and you know, we see a lot of SaaS these days in, uh, in crypto, for example, and, and those things do not, they're generally like their value isn't captured at the, at the Ethereum base layer. It's captured... Yeah. higher in the stack um yeah i think um it's important to kind of dispel some things like it's open source like but it it does carry a cost similar to perhaps maintaining a common good historically it's been governments that through taxation enforce this idea of policing patrolling and providing a good that otherwise be kind of depleted because you know like the ocean or parks and therefore you tax individuals. And then the government is that central authority that takes on that responsibility and people recognize that. And then they maintain these public goods, if you will. But they do carry a cost. And sometimes that's where people don't see, you know, providing, I guess like when you think about and extend that to crypto networks, which are economic like economic and political in some sense, even the Bitcoin network, the Ethereum network, miners, are expending these resources and it does carry a cost and in return they get a reward that I think here is I think the 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 key novelty here is that it is a non-political system in the traditional sense that it instead relies on 
programmatic, very predictable piece of code that is a block emission. And that is why people decide to coordinate, as you said earlier, and decide to expend a resource that has a cost in return for capturing some value. Now, a lot of that is a social construct and we can I don't, we don't necessarily need to argue about that, but I think that's the key kind of piece of novelty, which is you're ultimately coordinating a certain level of um, resources, attention, energy, whatever, whatever that is, in exchange for maintaining a, a, a network which could be the same as the analogy could be the same as a park or an ocean. Um, now, of course, these networks exist outside the traditional systems that we've historically used uh, that re in, instead rely on like, you know, taxing people and, and the perceived level of violence if you don't do that. And mm -hmm. that I think is something that is super powerful uh, when we combine that in a digital age and context. Yeah, I, absolutely. Jake, can I, can I ask a question about this? Okay. So you're arguing that these crypto networks are, are common good are common goods. And when I think about other common goods, it's like, it's like mines and fisheries and like forests are the common examples. But what then maybe the pushback that a lot of people would have is like, okay, well, you have uh, tragedy of the commons, right? Where like short-term self-interest of, of, of one person might, or like of a small group of people leads to like this tragedy for all. And so the, the common example is like, a uh, gr like grazing land or something like that, or like forests. Well, uh, it's a common good, but then if like one person like over forests, uh, it, it leads to like deforestation for all. Right. And so like, what is the example here or the analogy to draw with like common goods, these like public resources, which ultimately potentially lead to like tragedy, the commons, where do you see that existing in crypto today? And how does that make you think about well, how well, things like these crypto networks should actually how they should play out. Well, it's sort of like maybe the analogy would be like um, if you just had a very naive like ENS where anyone can at any time register a domain and then keep it for as long as they wanted, you know, then we would like very rapidly run it like, like send the value of this network to zero. Right. Why? Because you would, you would like launch the network Someone come in, would come in, he would, they, they would register like all the domains or maybe like a small number of people would register all the domains hoping to get rich. And then the result would be like no one would get rich because the network wouldn't grow because no one could register a domain. And so it's like I guess that would be like kind of a freeloader problem analogy there. But that's not how actually ENS works, right? ENS um, creates a bunch of economic incentives and disincentives and frictions to make sure that people don't do that. Like, for example, you know, if you wanted to try to register everything at ENS, it would cost you a pretty penny. It would probably cost you more ether than you'd be able to get your, your hands on. And so what you're seeing there is that the, um, like, um, the smart contract system, I guess, that underpins ENS is creating solutions to that problem, right? And the analogy in the, in, the, in the traditional world might be that like, okay, you have this like nice park, right? The classical analogy where everyone brings their animal or their cow or whatever to graze on the grass. Um, 
But in the traditional context, the solution to that problem is is uh, the government coming in and saying, "Guys, this is a public park, but you know what? You're only allowed to bring your car, your cow here for for an hour every day, or something like that." Creating these limitations. And so, in both of these cases, we're looking at sort of the same problem, but what we're changing is the implementation of the solution, and that's what I think is so interesting because um, there's a lot of advantages to having a smart contract based or digital solution or the ability to create many solutions that are digital. What are the advantages? Well, you know, if, if solutions are software, then you can do everything with them that you can do with software. You can iterate them quickly. You can have a team working on them. You can have multiple versions of solutions compete for whoever, you know, solves the problem the best. Um, You can, um, potentially roll out solutions more quickly, right? Like there's a there's efficiencies to going this digital route that we didn't have before. But the but the setup is the same. Like I, I also spent a lot of time, you know, reading up on uh, kind of anti-theses for, for crypto. <laughs> there's a lot of people these days that identify, you know, as like quote unquote crypto skeptics or or people just publishing articles like you know fairly and, and rightly questioning whether um, you know these constructs like smart contracts and cryptocurrencies you know are actually useful con- constructs whether they're valuable whether they actually solve the problem problems that they claim to solve or uh, or whether they're just sort of a money-making scheme, uh, you know, uh, materials for money launderers and so forth. Let me give you sort of an example. In a lot of these critiques, um, you know, people say, like, you know, if we go full crypto, we're going to create neoliberalism, and neoliberalism, you know, doesn't work, and and blah, 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 and here's all this research why. And, like, when they, when they do that, they sort of base their understanding of the world on the following – there are private corporations and those private corp- corporations or maybe even like public corporations, um, whether they're private or public doesn't matter because what is salient is that they're all generally uh, run by small numbers of people at the top, whether it be the public board or the private o- owner. And these corporations act in a way that they, first of all, want to maximize shareholder profit at the cost of absolutely everything else. Um, and they also grow without bound and try to become monopolies. And then on the other side of this equation is the government, which is sort of the only technology that is um, available to keep those corporations in check and to prevent them from getting out of hand and to make sure that the public good is preserved and so on and so forth. And if you have that model of the world then when some crypto person comes to you and says, hey, everything should be neoliberal, markets should be free, corporations and crypto projects should not be fettered by regulation, and everything should be financialized, right? We should have, we should tokenize everything, and those tokens should trade on secondary markets. You know, to a person with that operating system, that sounds like a terrible, terrible idea. Because what that sounds like is, you know, we want to give the evil corporations like all the power. And then by doing that, the corporations will abuse like the public good. 
But what our discussion about like blockchain-based common goods or public goods is about is not that like we want to create neoliberalism like per se, but that we're actually changing that operating system, right? Like what we're doing is we're saying there's actually an exit to this dichotomy between the evil corporation and the, you know, the, the government intermediator. And what happens is that we change that operating system by, by realigning incentives, right? So like in, in the, in the original model, it's like the corporation has incentive around itself and its shareholders. And then the government has incentive around the public good. But in our model, products and services can be owned by the public. And so the provision of public goods is facilitated in the public interest. Right. Mm. And maybe, maybe, okay. Maybe like, let's make, let's make that a little bit more concrete. Um, So what is, what is a digital public good that we think about these days? Okay. What about chat? Right. Like you guys and I, we live in a world where, you know, basic digital communication is sort of a fact of life. You know, when I was growing up, I didn't have a computer. I just like talked to my teacher at school and my friends on the bus and whatever. But, but these days I talk to, you know, 17 countries in the course of a few hours during the day. This is all facilitated by the internet. It's facilitated by chat, by video, communication um, protocols, right? Um, and yet when we think about like messaging or chat, in our current operating system, this is provided by Facebook. This is provided by Telegram. This is provided by a centralized corporate intermediary who at the end of the day, like doesn't have a zero profit margin. doesn't want a, a zero profit margin. It wants a non-zero profit margin and intermediaries like Facebook, they're perfectly happy to like read all of our messages. They're perfectly happy to monetize those things. We're perfectly happy to hand them over to government agencies. But if chat were, if, if the, the good of chat or messaging was provided by a decentralized network, then you go to a new model where there isn't an intermediary that is seeking a margin or a profit, right? And therefore the problems of like, you know, privacy that you have with Facebook, the problem of monetization, you know, in some sense goes, goes away. But then like, why is this, how, how can this, how can this thing be sustainable? Well, again, maybe maybe it's the it's the case that the people who use this chat are also giving it governance value, which is reflected in you know some kind of governance token of, of, of this network. Do do you ever think we'll reach that inflection? Because you ask most people, most people today would probably say, "Look, yeah, privacy is important in the same way that like flood insurance is." Most people would agree with it, but then don't really take action and would much rather not pay for it, meaning they would much rather use a free application like Facebook or Instagram or WhatsApp in exchange for giving up some sort of um, trade-off, whether it would be their privacy or whatnot. And I do wonder, and maybe this was like, um, maybe a good case study of this was Binance Smart Chain, where Mm -hmm. a lot of users migrated and very quickly PancakeSwap, which was an AMM, 
similar to Uniswap, became more popular, more widely used by number of users than Uniswap, like overnight. And you're left wondering if a very small subset of crypto users are willing to trade security in exchange for interacting with a less secure protocol because it's cheaper to interact with this, then I don't think it's a binary question of, I think it's more of, is this going to matter for sufficiently large population that it makes these networks sustainable? It's sort of what I, I, I'm, I'm curious to get your perspective. Well, I think you hit the nail on the head. Today, it's much easier to go to Facebook, to go to a centralized provider, et cetera. And it's actually very hard to go into a decentralized network. It requires getting a wallet, getting Ether, all of the frictions that we in crypto are so familiar with and are working through. But the, but the real question you're asking, Santiago, is like, is there a forcing function that slowly over time is raising the cost of the traditional thing and like lowering the cost of the crypto thing. And like, I think the answer is yes. And I think what that forcing function is, uh, well, there's probably a bunch of them, but like a few that we could talk about are, um, well, some obvious ones would just be that like peer to peer technology is getting, is getting easier to use over time. It's getting cheaper. It's reaching like feature parity. It's reaching like UX parity, but that's kind of a, that's not as interesting of an argument. The, more, the much more interesting argument is that, let's say, governments are becoming like more and more technologically advanced, right? Take, take a look at China. And as they become more technologically advanced, they become more invasive and they become more like authoritarian. And as that process continues, then the cost of, uh, of using a centralized thing becomes higher and higher and higher because those centralized things are usually like the way that governments like surveil people. Right. Um, so, so, so the answer to your question is like, if that forcing function gets to a point where governments become so invasive, um, you know, that they um, just make the cost of using these technologies so high for users then users will switch to alternatives. Jake, I want to pivot from talking about crypto as a public good to crypto funding public goods. I'm not sure if mm-hmm. you thought too much about that, but it does feel like maybe the one of the, the perfect end states of this is enabling some sort of coordination of these labor movements and cooperative movements and, and uh, to be able to really like fund these big public goods projects that I feel like the government hasn't been able to actually been able to fund for the, you know, maybe since like the mid 1900s, the, the big projects of the fifties and sixties and seventies. Uh, and, and maybe this is just uh, lack of conviction in the government these days, but it, it does feel like something like solving climate change and these kind of things. Like it does feel like, uh, or, or implementing nuclear energy. It does feel like uh, crypto public goods funding will create these, uh, will solve these big issues and that it won't come from from a government solution, but that could just also be the uh, me living my small crypto bubble. So I, I'm, I'm curious to get your take on that. Well, so yeah, let's talk about like government funding for science maybe or something like that. But before we get there, here's like a much more, here's like a non-government example of public goods funding, right? So for example, you might be aware that recently we've been making great advancements in the world of neural networks. 
we've been creating these large neural networks that are now doing, like they rival what humans can do. You now have Dolly 2, you give it some text, it magically materializes a picture of whatever you're talking about. We have GPT-3, you can now implement a customer service bot and it's almost like people won't even know the difference between a human. It's almost like passing the Turing test right now. Um, but all of these neural network models, which are all, they're called foundation models. They're all very, very big. Like, like um, I believe GPT-3 uh, costs something like $15 million to train that model. I believe Dolly was something like hundreds of thousands of millions of dollars to train that model. But all these models are controlled by private corporations, right? Like OpenAI, Google, uh, Facebook, Amazon, so forth. Um, there's a movement of founders right now who are saying, wait a minute, like why should OpenAI determine like what text prompts I can put into their thing? Um, why is it only big companies that have access to the data sets that create these models? And by the way, the data set is like a huge component in how good the model will perform, right? So if you have great data sets, you're going to have great models. Um, you know, and, and in this context, like we could take some of this crypto technology we've been talking about and imagine a world where you don't need the sponsorship of a giant corporation uh, who has all these like liabilities and interests um, and also tends to behave, you know, in these like proprietary closed source kind of ways. Uh, we no longer need those kinds of entities in order to create these models. We can now do it through crowdfunding. Um, and there are groups in the market right now that are doing exactly that. Like they, they put together teams of scientists who are creating analogs of Dolly, GPT-3, and things like that, extending those models to, you know, to different mediums. Um, but using crypto, they could be, they could be like funded in a, in a totally crowdsourced manner. So you imagine like a Kickstarter where, you know, different groups of scientists sort of, pitch you like, hey, we're going to create like Dolly, but instead of just pictures, it's going to be able to produce videos like <laughs> based on your on your text des description. Isn't that cool? And there's many different kinds of applications for that. Like, for example, you, you know, you might want to be uh, storyboarding a TV commercial and that kind of tool might really help you in, in, in doing that or, you know, probably many other use cases we can think about. Um, and so a group of crowdfunders would like fund this model. They would get tokens. The proceeds from the token sale would be used essentially for the data set, for the compute. And then once the model is uh, trained, it could be launched possibly on a decentralized network as well. Um, and then the token holders would like get first dibs or the tokens can be used to redeem uh, you know, computation uh, in, in that model to get the outputs and so on, right? So that creates like a fundamentally different world where the openness of these models will really accelerate like uh, all the technological progress around these models. And I think that, that that's like really, really interesting. Um, does, that, does that make sense? It does. It does. Yeah. So I get how Ethereum and crypto uh, creates more efficient 
donations and things like that. But do, do you think that we move from a, from a system from, from individual and like one-time donations that are primarily funded by wealthy folks to like these new mechanisms that where we make long-term commitments to fund public goods uh, that happen from folks who aren't just like the mega wealthy and it's more of on, uh, on like a recurring basis instead of these like these big one-time donations. Is that, is that the new system that gets set up or? Absolutely. I think, well, again, because of efficiency, right? Like I, it's now okay to donate 25 cents, you know, to, to a cause, right? So the barrier to entry for things like donating, for things like governing, um, the outputs of these processes, like it really goes down. Like I'll, I'll, Listen, when you talk about like efficiency, it sounds really boring, but let me give you kind of an example of why actually these types of efficiencies are so impactful. When I was graduating high school back in the early 2000s, it probably cost about a million dollars to start a tech startup. It's like, you know, you know, you needed a physical office, you needed uh, computers, you needed recruiters, you needed to hire, uh, you know, people to do your HR, you needed to hire people to do um, benefits, you needed a lawyer, like, like that process 20 or so years ago was like way more expensive than it is today. Because in like 1999, 2000, 2001, there weren't that many tech startups. The cost of those processes over 20 years have, have gone down to like literally like nothing, right? Like it's you can register your company on legal zoom, you could get gusto for benefits, you have all kinds of SaaS software that you know, I don't know, does peer review and on your team and facilitates like all the processes that a, that a tech startup needs to go through. And the result of the price of starting a startup going down so dramatically, what has been the result of that process? Well, the result is that there is now thousands of startups that come onto the market every month in the United States. And there's, I don't, I don't know the exact numbers off the top, there's, you know, tens of thousands every year. And the fact that we can create startups at this rate means that we like find an Uber or a Facebook or an Airbnb you know, or, or, or the next big successful company much faster than when those startups could, you know, needed a million dollars to get started. Doesn't mean they'll, doesn't that mean they'll necessarily be profitable, but yeah. Well, Jay, this has been a fascinating discussion. I do want to end it with uh, just a fire round of questions um, that we do. Um, of course. So uh, how many hours of sleep do you get? Wow. Um, I would say... I would say like seven or eight, I think. Wow. We'll have to ask you when you're back on the pod because I hear you're having a, a, a kid soon. So that may dramatically <laughs> go down. Yeah, yeah. Che- <laughs> I'll check, check back, we'll in, check a back yeah. on you in a couple months. Um, <laughs> thing that excites you the most right now, a theme, a sector uh, in, in crypto Web3. Yeah. Well, last weekend, I, I finished Balaji Srinivasan's The Network State. So this is like very much to the point of our discussion of common and public goods. And I think, you know, check it out. It's thenetworkstate.com. I think what Balaji does well is he, he like verbalizes, um, you know, what a lot of us in crypto understand, um, you know, the broad frontier of innovation of blockchains to be, which is our whole discussion. 
This is a way of organizing people. This is a way of creating public goods, public governance. And what Balaji is talking about is like, hey, can we use this technology to um, to innovate on like governance itself? In other words, create like digital nations. And I think it's a fascinating, fascinating discussion. It sounds completely futuristic, but I actually think in the next 10 years, we'll, we'll, we'll almost certainly see it. Yeah. What's been the hardest thing as an investor in the space, particularly someone like you has been early in a lot of things? Uh, great question. Um, you know, everything is constantly changing in a nascent space. And that means, and I mean everything, I mean the, the opportunities, I mean the technologies are obsoleting one another. I mean um, the structures of how deals are done, um, the, the regulatory environment, as we're now starting to feel pretty viscerally in, in the United States, um, you know, just everything. And so the it, as a crypto investor, like, like your, your kind of overall goal is to like, how do I make sense of all this stuff and translate it into like a long-term investment? And I think that's, that's super, super challenging. Would you rather invest in a very talented team in a not so big market or in a massive market with a not so talented team? The first thing, um, because I, I think, um, when, like, when you take small markets and, and like, for example, like translate them into a crypto domain, you tend to create new markets. You tend to create more value. Like, like here's a here's like a dumb example, like which I love to use for for NFTs. Think about fonts. Fonts is not a sexy market. You don't see a lot of um, VCs investing in fonts, and yet fonts are something that are used on like every single web page that you ever like pull up on your phone or on your computer, and every font generally speaking, is licensed. And today there's this almost like quasi-monopoly where like Google gets a lot of fun mm-hmm. licensing out, right? Now imagine what we could do to that market if we, uh, first of all, used a decentralized marketplace where font creators could reach their audiences directly. They could cut out those middlemen. And second of all, use NFTs as a way of tokenizing not just the licenses to fonts, but the revenue streams to fonts, mm-hmm. Right. Um, I think we would take that market 10x, 20x, 30x uh, if we could popularize something like that. So I, I, I think I would always err on like great team who has an amazing vision in a market that's kind of like not obvious to people. Yeah, but particularly when you layer on these new types of business models and uniquely enabled by kind of Web3 NFTs, if you will. Uh, yeah, absolutely. You're someone that is pretty smart on the DAO space. What are the biggest challenges um, that you're seeing with DAOs? today what a great question um i'm a huge fan of the of the of the dow space and at the same time i have this like parental rage <laughs> <laughs> um like at it because it's so um yeah it, it, it's like the the infrastructure of DAOs is, is extremely nascent very naive um doesn't work together well you know like for example you know if you're running a DAO, you need like on-chain tools to you know, to hold your funds, to settle your transactions, you need off-chain tools for like, I don't know, snapshot or like sentiment analysis. You need communication tools um, like Discord or Telegram or, or something else. You need security tools. You need third-party SaaS. Like, like to actually run a DAO means that you're actually running an organization. And we have a lot of tools in the traditional world to run organizations. And we have a very nascent set of tools and DAOs to run DAOs. Even if those tools worked well, 
it would still be like extraordinarily hard, for example, to take your whole community and like upgrade them to a new set of tools. And so we're sort of missing um, a lot of, we're sort of missing kind of like an operating system that makes all of that work well. So if you're like on Linux and you have apt-get, you can upgrade your tools very quickly. But if you're running a DAO, you don't have anything like that, right? So, you know, this is one of the reasons I'm super interested and have been for a long time an investor in Urbit Mm -hmm. um, and what they're doing in terms of, uh, you know, creating an operating system for Web3 technologies. My last two questions. The first one is, uh, what, what do you see as the largest NFT market? Art, you know, real estate? tokenized insurance contracts, uh, gaming, like curious in the um, next like five, 10 years. Well, yeah. So, so today, like the three main use cases are digital art, which is a minority use case now, um, collectibles, which I believe is still a majority use case and in-game assets, which is kind of like growing. Um, our general thesis is that NFTs are not limited to those verticals. They're, they're NFTs are general financial technology for, non-fungible goods. And so they're going to extend to a lot of other like digital content. So movies, music, fonts, icons, you know, things like that. Um, Blog posts are being tokenized. This is the kind of stuff that I'm, I get really excited about because this is one of those spaces where like we haven't tokenized something like this before we have, they haven't been liquid before they haven't traded on uh, public markets before. And yet there's like billions of these things. So I like I like wonder if like the tokenization of all blogs in the world might actually be like one of the biggest IPOs of all time, like if not the biggest. But then I also think about real estate, and so you know today we're very fixated on uh, NFTs as digital rep- representations of digital things, but it's very clear that NFTs can also be extended, and people are extending them to physical things like the title of your house, the deed. Uh, the deed to your car, whatever it is, right? Mm-hmm. Um, sorry, I got those backwards. Deed to your house, title to your car, mm-hmm. um, right? And, and and like when I think about real estate, I mean, holy crap, that's like tens of trillions of dollars. Mm-hmm. Now, the other component of your question is like, which of these come first? I mean, I definitely think like digital things are much of lower hanging fruit. But for example, like things like music, those areas are going to be like much harder to disrupt than like tokenizing blog posts. Mm-hmm. which nobody has ever even tried before. Blog posts are like Greenfield and music has a lot of like incumbents. So those, are, mm-hmm. those differences would matter too. Yeah. My last question, Jason might have uh, one, but is what is something that you wish you knew for, for a lot of the folks that listen that are either starting their company or starting to invest in, in their early on in their careers, what is something that you wish you knew that you know today that you wish you kind of knew when you were getting started? Well, I think the company that I started in in, block, in crypto, which is CoinFund, um, was formed very organically, right? It was formed out of people who came together with a common interest in crypto. Um, everyone who, you know, found, like helped me like build this company, um, you know, were there because they love crypto, wanted to be there. Um, you know, we didn't we didn't have huge pedigree. At some point, we were you know, first time managers trying to raise money for the first time. And it's really hard and especially really hard in a new asset class. Um, 
And today we're a company of over 30 people, um, New York, uh, Miami, Boston, other places. Um, you know, we, we've been able to raise money from uh, successfully from uh, institutional investors. Uh, we, we're an RIA, uh, so a regulated entity in the United States with the SEC, right? So we, you know, we've come sort of a long way as a company. And if I were to do it all again, I wish I could have formed that team like much earlier than we organically did. Like if I had started with the notion of, you know, like let's build an amazing team for this, um, we could have maybe moved faster. Totally. Great. Well, I'll cheat one last because we always like to give either a <laughs> we we always like to give either a book or a movie recommendation, especially at summertime. People go to the beach, what have you. They like to read or, or watch a movie. So, Jake, maybe um, you could uh, uh, give us uh, one last tidbit of wisdom for our listeners: uh, a book or a series movie that you have recently watched or read that you recommend. Yeah, I mean, it's important to take a break from crypto every once in a while. I'll tell you how I, um, what I do sort of as a hobby. I, so I live in Miami. There's a lot of Spanish speakers here. And I actually studied Spanish in, in high school. And I've started to, like, learn Spanish again now. And I'm actually, like, pretty good at Spanish. I can um, understand most things that I read in the newspaper without a dictionary and stuff like that. It's still hard to understand when people speak fast. But in, in sort of in service of that, one um, interesting Netflix show, which is Spanish language that I, I watched recently, is called Somos. And it's a kind of a Mexican drama dealing with a town in Mexico and, and mm-hmm. kind of like looking into some of the issues of like the cartel violence that, that happens there. I thought it was the, um, the fascinating. more authentic version of Narcos, if you will. Yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> um, nice. And then and then the other. Um, the other thing that I've been watching recently, because I love Nathan Fielder uh, of Nathan for You, is the rehearsal. <laughs> uh, nice. And and if you watch the first episode of that, it deals with this bar, which is located in Williamsburg, which is you know the neighborhood where I come from. Hmm. Nice. Well, Jake, stick around because we're going to do a, a recording of this in Spanish. Entonces, si habla español, entonces vamos a hacerlo otra vez para todos nuestros. <laughs> Just kidding. Uh, thanks for coming on the show, man. This has been a very fascinating discussion. I think it's one of the topics that don't get talked about a lot, but in, in circles that I'm at, like in, in investor circles and some of the more kind of deep thinkers in this space, it, it is something that is it's kind of not talked about enough, but I think it's super important if you're a founder, if you're an investor, if you're just an observer of the of these new kind of political economic systems. And so thanks for coming on and sharing your wisdom. I think it's going to be an episode that we constantly look back on to reflect on and also to inform how we think about the evolution of the space, which is still very nascent. And and of course, you're someone that has been super early in a lot of these things, NFTs, Web3 generally. And so uh, and thinking about DAOs. And so we'll definitely have to ha- uh, have you on uh, maybe after you know a couple couple months after you you become a dad and and you know you take a break, uh, we'd love to have you on to continue the conversation. But it's been really fascinating. So thanks for making for making the time. Yeah, absolutely, and thank you so much for having me and 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 being like interested in this topic because I think it's <laughs> such an important one and it's one that like most people in you know out there in the public they don't really like talk about or mm-hmm. there's not a lot of people who like present you know public goods as as like something that you do in crypto to, mo- to most mainstream people. So thank Absolutely. you so much. Yeah, appreciate it, Jake. This is great. 